Welcome to EM Case's ninth Journal Jam podcast, Fall 2016, on oral rehydration strategies in pediatric gastroenteritis. Anton Hellman here. This time around, we're going to have Justin Morgenstern interviewing the great pediatric EM researcher, Stephen Friedman, and after that, Anthony Crocco, the division head and medical director of pediatric EM at Health Sciences in Hamilton, is going to give you his take on Dr. Friedman's paper. Here we go. Well, there's an early frontrunner for my favorite paper of 2016. It's practical, it's simple, and it challenges a myth. Definitely some of my favorite things. And I'll spoil the surprise a little bit. This paper has already changed my practice. The paper I'm talking about, and it's a bit of a mouthful, is the effect of dilute apple juice and preferred fluids versus electrolyte maintenance solution on treatment failure among children with mild gastroenteritis, a randomized clinical trial. It was published in JAMA this year, and I get the enormous honor of speaking with the lead author, Dr. Stephen Friedman. Welcome to Journal Jam, Dr. Friedman. It's a pleasure being here, and thanks so much for inviting me today. Dr. Friedman is a giant in the field of pediatric emergency medicine, and he has a list of publications as long as your arm. He's also previously been a guest on EM Cases with some great insights on our episode on pediatric abdominal pain and appendicitis. Dr. Friedman, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Yeah, it's uh, it's a pleasure. Um, so I uh, trained as a pediatrician at the Hospital for Sick Children uh, in Toronto for my residency, and then I went on to do fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine at uh, Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago. While I was down there, I did a master's in clinical investigation at Northwestern University, and uh, since then I've returned to Canada and have. Uh, Spent uh, the first eight years back in Toronto working at SickKids again, and then I actually have had the pleasure of uh, working in Calgary for the past four years at the Alberta Children's Hospital affiliated with the University of Calgary. Wonderful. Well, in my experience, kids love apple juice. They can't get enough. But when they come to the emergency department with gastro, with vomiting, diarrhea, we've always been taught that juice was a bad thing. We want them to drink We just don't want them to drink the stuff that they like drinking. So instead, we use a variety of different electrolyte solutions, which I have to admit, I haven't tried myself, but generally kids don't seem to like them. So before we jump into your paper, can you give us some background on why we were always taught that apple juice was a bad choice for children with gastroenteritis? There are reasons why we were taught, and I was taught, and we continue to teach that that apple juice is not a good choice for kids with gastroenteritis. But Really what we're being taught and told is it's not a good choice or a great choice for kids who need rehydration. So there's a difference in in how we approach kids and how we assess kids. Some kids have gastroenteritis. Actually, the vast majority have vomiting and diarrhea but do not have dehydration. It's when they're in that dehydrated phase and they need rehydration that hypotonic solutions might not be the best choice. And the real reason for that is because from a physiologic perspective, we know that you need the optimal ratio of sodium to glucose to get co-transport across the intestinal mucosa. Apple juice does not have that rehydration, oral rehydration solutions have a much better ratio of those two to optimize that co-transporter. When you don't optimize the co-transporter, you get three main things. One is you don't transport as much liquid, so you don't rehydrate as well. So apple juice, probably from a physiologic perspective, is not as good at rehydrating. The other concerns are, one, because you don't absorb all the glucose, and apple juice has a fair amount of uh, high osmotic load, 
primarily due to the glucose, you can actually cause an osmotic diarrhea. And this can be particularly true perhaps in younger kids or even those who have a lot of diarrhea. Now, the other thing we also know is the greatest driver of ED visits in kids with gastroenteritis is not diarrhea, it's actually vomiting. However, we do see both sides of the spectrum. The other thing that we need to consider, particularly in young kids, is the hypotonicity of solutions like apple juice have the potential to result in hyponatremia. Once again, kids with significant dehydration and those who are young are those who are at greatest risk. But um, really, that's kind of where it comes from. And it's really based on physiology and not really considering the patient perspective and the, the um, symptom complex of how unwell they are. So to use a single approach to treat all kids who have a disease might not be the optimal approach. That's great. That, that sounds like a lot of the myths that we have in emergency medicine. They seem to be based on physiology that makes a lot of sense, but not really based on patient-oriented outcomes, the outcomes that really matter. But that can be really hard to see through, that kind of, that kind of dogma, that kind of tradition. What gave you the insight that this would be an okay topic, a good topic for study? Well, I think it, it stemmed from the fact that I quickly realized that the vast majority of kids, including those who we actually never see, so don't forget 90% of the population with gastroenteritis actually probably never see an emergency department door. So we've got this great uh, majority of kids who are at home who have very mild symptoms, and we need to think about them a little bit as well when we're evaluating these. We see in the emergency departments a, also a very large proportion of the kids are not significantly dehydrated. And so we started to realize that many of these kids are drinking these solutions at home and coming into the emergency department and they are not dehydrated. And when they come into the ED, often the nurses will give them a, an oral rehydration solution to consume. But what we realized was by the time we see them, and it might be that they waited 30 minutes and did oral rehydration therapy or three or four hours, and the parents will often tell you they ref kid just refused to drink the solution they were given. And so we as clinicians then have a choice to make. And I started to realize that, okay, uh, am I going to fight an uphill battle using a therapy that in a pragmatic world can't be used, or should I think about alternatives? And that's where I started to realize that, okay, these kids are not dehydrated. What do we say and what do the guidelines actually say about the management of kids who are rehydrated, or in this case, never dehydrated? Well, actually, we recommend that they return to a normal diet as soon as possible. So why, just because they showed up at our door in an emergency department, should we assume they need rehydration when they're not dehydrated and then put them on a rehydration solution when in reality, we probably can treat them as we tell the parents to do at home, which is return to a normal diet as soon as they're tolerating it. That's brilliant. I love the common sense approach to, to everything in medicine. So let's jump into what you actually did in this study. Can you briefly describe your methods, who got into the study and who the different groups were here? Yeah, so we essentially took kids six months to 60 months of age with no significant underlying comorbidities um, who had had a recent onset of vomiting or diarrhea, which we defined as 96 hours, and had greater than or equal to three episodes of vomiting or diarrhea in a 24-hour period, which is kind of the standard definition. And so we took these kids, and as soon as we could identify them at triage, our research nurse would approach the, the family and see if they were interested in being randomized into a trial where they either received 
half strength apple juice, and we can come back to why that was chosen later perhaps, um, versus an oral uh, electrolyte solution. In this one, we use pediatric electrolyte. Um, and then they underwent standard oral rehydration therapy approaches, small amounts, small volumes frequently, increasing as tolerated. And the kid would fall into the normal stream of care, seeing the ED physician as they normally would at the normal time. And the ED physician at that point in time could choose to do whatever he or she wanted as far as ongoing oral rehydration, intravenous rehydration, or discharge the child. And then when they went home, or at the time that they were deemed ready for discharge, we actually gave the family an envelope because they were, everyone was blinded up until that point in time. But at the time of discharge, the research nurse would give the family an assignment envelope to which the research nurse was blinded, uh, and that instructed the family as to what to do at home. And essentially, it said one of two things. If you are in our fluid as tolerated arm or our preferred fluids arm, what you could do at home essentially was whatever you wanted to do to replace your child's losses, whatever the child wanted to take. If you were in our uh, oral electrolyte solution arm, the child was instructed to use electrolyte maintenance solution to replace ongoing losses at home. And then we called the family daily to find out how the child was doing. And essentially what we were looking at was how the child did at a composite level, looking at undesirable outcomes in the ED as well as undesirable outcomes after discharge. With the hypothesis being that those who receive the half-strength apple juice followed by fluids as tolerated or preferred fluids would not do worse than those who were given the electrolyte main solution. Why did you choose half-strength apple juice? They like the taste. They are. They drink it frequently. They're used to it. Many parents are already giving it to their child. Um, we diluted it to half strength because of some of the earlier concerns that we talked about, particularly related to the osmotic load. We were less worried about the hyponatremia. And so we felt that that was the optimal compromise of a solution. Other people ask, have asked, why didn't we choose uh, sports electrolyte maintenance solution drink? etc. Um, probably some of the other reasons we looked at apple juice was cost. It's very inexpensive. The other possibility was because parents almost always have that in their home readily available to go. Because really, we tried to make this pragmatic as to what's in your fridge, what does your child like to drink? Yeah, and I absolutely love that because I see so many parents running out to one of our major pharmacies to stock up on this electrolyte solution when they, they probably could have just given the kid what they already have in the fridge right then at three in the morning. This was a non-inferiority trial. We try to get a little bit nerdy at least once every episode on Journal Gem just to help our audience understand some of the key concepts in evidence-based medicine. So Dr. Friedman, can you describe for us what a non-inferiority trial is and why you decided on a non-inferiority approach here? Sure. Um, so we felt that there was a very widely accepted standard of care being the use of electrolyte maintenance solution. It's embedded in guidelines. It's embedded in emergency departments globally, I, I would say. A and the other piece is that we did not suspect that our intervention, which was a dilute apple juice and preferred fluids, would be superior. We felt that probably it would do very similarly and probably if it performs slightly less well, it would be, we, we hypothesized that it's likely is within the realm of non-inferiority, meaning it would not be beyond what us as physicians and parents would accept as a difference that would be significant. 
um, at a clinical level. And so we chose this as a non-inferiority because we didn't really think that if we had set this up as a superiority trial that we would have shown superiority and then it would have been a negative trial. And basically this treatment and approach would have basically fallen once again by the wayside and we would have persisted with electrolyte maintenance solution. But we felt if we set it up as a non-inferiority using a margin that clinicians and parents would accept, then the benefits, because you, when you're using a non-inferiority design, the treatment that is not statistically significantly inferior, though, should theoretically have some benefits. And we felt that our proposed approach, as we've talked about a little bit already, has some theoretical benefits in cost. It's in your house. You don't have to run out. You don't have to fight with your child who's already not feeling well. Um, and the kids will drink it and we felt would not do significantly worse. And hence, the non-inferiority design. Excellent. Well, I think that's probably enough of the nerdy background for everybody. Let's get into what everybody really wants to hear about the bottom line. What were your key results in this trial? So really, our primary outcome was a composite measure of treatment failure. It included several parameters, and I'm just going to run through them so people have a sense of what was in the, the composite primary outcome. They were unscheduled healthcare visits, weight loss or dehydration at a follow-up visit, IV rehydration, hospitalization, extended symptomatology, or crossover. And what these were, these all actually extended for up to seven days following the index visit. Because we wanted to look at not only how the child did in the emergency department, but also what happened after they left home. Because if we do better today, but worse tomorrow, we're no better off. So we what we found was the those who were randomized to the half-strength apple juice preferred fluids therapy arm had a failure rate that was significantly non-inferior compared to the electrolyte maintenance solution therapy. It was a 16.7% failure rate in the diluted apple juice arm compared to 25% in the electrolyte maintenance solution arm. But we then actually had pre-specified that we would do a superiority analysis if we found non-inferiority. And while just before I was saying we didn't expect to find superiority, we actually did find superiority for this therapy. So to wrap up a, a long-winded paragraph, um, we found that those who were randomized to dilute apple juice actually did better than those who received electrolyte maintenance solution in the emergency department. Awesome. That's great news for the kids, I'm sure. Now, you did decide to use a composite outcome here. When we're critically appraising papers, this often comes up as an issue because not all components of the composite are necessarily as important as, as each other. So when you were setting up the study, why did you decide on using a composite outcome? So it's a, that's a good question, and I think probably very much a philosophical one more than a statistical one, as well as I think um, important for clinicians reading these papers to think about what outcomes are most important to them and their patients. So I chose a composite because I felt it was important, and I feel this way about a lot of this, the work I do, I'm not just focusing on a single symptom or a single outcome, because as I was saying earlier, if we improve how you do today, so if you have, if you don't need an intravenous in the ED today, but you go home and you have dramatically worse diarrhea for five days, and you have to follow up with your primary care provider or another ED visit or need an IV four days from now, are you better off because we didn't get the IV today? And there's no right answer to that question. And so I believe that composite outcome measures chosen wisely balancing the different outcomes that are of importance 
um, is a really important approach to clinical trials. It's a significant impact that we as clinicians sometimes forget about is what goes on when a child leaves our door. And I think that this study and this composite outcome balances that very well. Yeah, I think there's some really important insights into the practicality of research there. And realistically, sometimes we care about more than one outcome. So focusing on just a single outcome might not be the most appropriate. Now, knowing that, are you able to break down the components of the composite outcome in your study? Were there some components that were more effective than others? Yeah, actually, I want to I want to highlight the the key one. Actually, it's so it was really related to intravenous rehydration was the driver of the difference between the groups. We found that intravenous rehydration overall, but actually, when you even subanalyze that piece, which is listed under some of our secondary outcomes, we looked at IV rehydration at the index ED visit, and I'll confess, I was surprised to see how significant a difference there was. So the electrolyte maintenance solution arm had an IV insertion rate of nearly 7% compared to a 1% IV insertion rate in our half-strength apple juice arm. And, you know, really people ask me, well, how did the, the apple juice, the diluted apple juice make these kids so much better? I don't think that that's the case. I think the case is that the children in that group were getting what they wanted, drinking, and consequently, parents are happier. Consequently, clinicians and nurses taking care of these kids are happier. And as a result, we eliminate the cascade of child refuses to drink, child now fell back asleep, parents are frustrated and have given up. Nurses come back to doctor and say that the child's not drinking. Doctor then says, well, I have to do something. I'm going to put an IV in. And I think that that, unfortunately, is the realistic cascade of events that sometimes happens in these kids. And what I believe we've done is we've actually been able to make these kids happier. We've given them what they wanted. They've managed to drink some. It's not that we've cured whatever their symptoms were or rehydrated them more, but we've stopped a cascade that leads to intervention that might be unnecessary. That sounds like classic pediatrics. You always have two patients, parent and kid. (laughs) Correct. So when we're reading any kind of research, it's it's really important to be able to put it into context. Uh, and that really means for the practicing clinician knowing exactly who was in the study and who was excluded. And I know you already told us who you included in the study, but I think it bears repeating because if I'm going to put this into practice tomorrow, I really need to know exactly who these patients were. So who got into the study and were there any important exclusion criteria that I really need to know about? No, you really uh, hit the nail on the head there because it's important that people don't view this as, once again, going the reverse of what we started with of this approach should be taken in all kids who have vomiting and diarrhea regardless of underlying diseases or severity of illness. So we, number one, excluded kids who were less than six months of age. So we only included kids six months to 60 months of age. They had diarrhea, three or more episodes or vomiting, three or more episodes in the preceding 24 hours. They were acutely unwell too. So when you're more acutely unwell, you're less likely to have fluid shifts. So these kids had less than 96 hours of symptoms and they had to weigh more than eight kilograms. And the reason that was chosen is because many children in our our protocol and pathway um, are eligible for a dose of Andansetron. And that only occurs after they weigh more than eight kilograms. And so we use that as our lower cut limit. However, that often corresponds um, to six months of age. So those are almost in line, very well in line there. And they had to have, and this is most importantly, none to minimal dehydration. So children, you know, assessing dehydration is not as easy as one would think. And I really encourage people to think about it along the lines of none, n- none to minimal, some, 
and then severe. Severe is really uncommon in North America and most of our EDs. Those are the kids, the nurses rush into the recess room and we go in and we need IV access within a minute or two or else they need intraosseous insertion. And those are not the kids we are looking at. The sum group are really the kids who have several features of dehydration, who look somewhat unwell, um, who need rehydration. And most of those kids were excluded. And we excluded those kids if they had what we used as a clinical dehydration scale, which is a validated measure of dehydration severity. So if they had a clinical dehydration scale score greater than or equal to five, they were excluded. And we felt that that would get rid of almost all the kids with some dehydration. Um, the other kids that we also excluded were those who had a capillary refill that was delayed, so greater than or equal to two seconds. Kids with significant GI disease, so IBD, short gut syndrome, who really uh, their handling of enteral fluid administration is not within keeping of normal physiology, as well as kids with other significant chronic comorbid diseases. The big ones that I'll highlight, for example, would be diabetes, inborn errors of metabolism, where they need IV fluids, they need their glucose, um, and really management is a different kettle of fish for those kids. We also excluded kids who were corrected postnatal age less than 30 weeks, so some of the premature kids that we see. They don't behave physiologically like a six-month-old, even though they might be six months postnatal age, as well as kids with bilious vomiting, hematochesia, uh, hematemesis, kids where we were worried about acute abdomen like appendicitis, intussusception, and then lastly, kids, as I mentioned, who need immediate intravenous access for whatever other reason. So really, we took kids, classic gastro symptoms, minimal to no dehydration, no to minimal dehydration, and then no significant underlying comorbidities. So if you think about it that way, that'll capture pretty much all your kids. Yeah, it's a, a pretty common sense collection of patients in this study. But my recommendation to anybody who's going to change their practice based on a study is for at least the few, first few months till you get used to it, it might be a good idea to keep the study on your on your smartphone or on Evernote or somewhere like that. So you can actually just quickly go back and refer to the inclusion and exclusion criteria and make sure you're applying the study correctly. While we won't have detailed show notes on this Journal Jam podcast, we will have the inclusion and exclusion criteria for you on the website. So in general, when we're discussing evidence, we tend to focus on the benefits of studies, but we have this habit of downplaying or ignoring harms. In your results, you report two children with mild hyponatremia, one from each group, and other than that, you report that there were no adverse events that were identified. One thing we always want to remember when reading efficacy trials like this is that they aren't necessarily powered to look for harms, so we can't really make definitive statements about the harms based on the studies that we read. With that in mind, are there any potential harms of this dilute apple juice hydration strategy that we should be aware of? Well, I think the you know the the most important is um, applying this therapy to a low risk population, which is really who we applied it to. So I reiterating what you just said, um, you know, making sure you knew what the eligibility criteria for this trial are is of paramount importance. If you use it in the wrong group of kids, so really young, significant underlying comorbidities, significant dehydration, then you actually do start entering the realm of where you might be putting kids at risk for harm. And the real harms are the the two that we talked about early on, which would be hyponatremia, as well as worsening the diarrhea, so osmotic diarrhea. While we did not see extended symptomatology being a major concern in this study, that is something to think about, particularly in kids who might not absorb 
glucose or have other underlying comorbidities that might affect their absorption or the really young kids or those even with severe gastroenteritis. It's hard to say, you know, we didn't have enough kids who had more than 20 episodes in a day. So I think getting a sense for that might be really important down the road. But those would be the two that I look for. But the most important is going to be what happens after they go home? Because every child we see in the emergency department is at risk for deterioration after they leave your ED. And so it's the discharge instructions that we find we provide to the parents and how we review with them what to do at home that's the key to getting these kids and uh, making sure that they're safe following discharge, whether they're in this study, this therapeutic protocol or any other treatment therapy that you give for whatever disease process. That's an incredibly important point. Discharge instructions are, are always incredibly important. So let's just skip right ahead. What would be your discharge instructions for, for these patients? Yeah, so I really try to teach the parents, number one, how to do oral rehydration therapy because we talk about it as if it's a given. But many healthcare providers don't teach it properly and we don't take the time to teach it properly. Um, and it actually can play a huge role in the outcome after discharge. So the most important thing is small amounts of liquid frequently if they're vomiting. Um, and we often use, I usually use a syringe in the really young kids. Increase that as tolerated, but somewhat aggressively because if we do just you know one teaspoon or five ml every five minutes, you're actually not going to get a significant volume of fluids into the kids. So the parents need to be aware of that. They need to be also taught to look for signs of dehydration. So very sleepy, not urinating. And when I talk to parents about that, I find that to be a really helpful one. So it's normal to have more concentrated urine or darker urine and slightly decreased urine. That's what our bodies do. That's a physiologic response before you're dehydrated to maintaining euvolemia. Child wakes up, for example, with a dry diaper in the morning or goes more than eight hours without urinating. I highly recommend that they either speak to a telephone help, help advice line or go see their primary care physician or, be, or see emergency department care. You know, obviously other red flags are bloody diarrhea, bilious or bloody vomitus, and also refusing to drink. So if they're having significant losses, it's kind of basic physiology of if they're losing more than they're taking in, they're going to get dehydrated. And that's really kind of an important lesson for parents to keep in mind because often they worry about the diarrhea, but I try to tell them if your child's drinking, they're probably going to be okay. They often worry about the vomiting, but the reality is vomitus doesn't have a lot of volume in it, especially after the first vomit that the parent describes as very large, the subsequent ones are usually very small volume vomitus. So if they're doing oral rehydration, small amounts frequently, and the losses are not significant, the child should be okay. Now, this was a fantastic study, but every study does have some limitations. So let's take a couple minutes just to discuss a couple and help place the study into context. Now, first, this was a convenient sample, which means that children were only enrolled when you had a research assistant present. Do you think that the children presenting after hours, and I'm presuming that your research assistant was, wasn't working night shifts, so might the kids presenting at night be different in some way that could impact the results? So I think it's unlikely. I can't prove that um, for you, but it's a legitimate question. Our nurses did work till midnight most nights. So we actually enrolled well into the evening. And we actually know that most of the kids that come after midnight are kids who actually presented or who are seen after midnight have actually presented even during the evening hours. And it's just catching up with the backlog. But some other studies that I've done have also shown that the IV insertion rates, for example, are no higher at night. Um, than they are during the day. So it really isn't, there isn't a reason to believe that these kids are more unwell than the kids that we see during the day. Fair enough. 
And the second limitation of this study was that this was a single center study, and not just any single center, but one of the best pediatric hospitals in the world. Do you think you were doing anything differently at SickKids than I would be doing in the community? And how would that impact the generalizability of the results? The outcomes of the study would be very different if you are putting IVs into more kids than we do at a tertiary care center, which is possible. And we do know that that occurs more frequently at other sites. And, you know, the IV insertion rate at the index ED visit in this study overall was very low. It was just 4%. But most of these kids do not need IVs. And really, if we set them up with teaching oral rehydration therapy to our frontline care providers and starting that as soon as possible, implementing administration of Andansetron in the appropriate group of kids. So one of the things we did in this study, we actually protocolized it that even before uh, being seen by the physician, if the child vomited during ongoing oral rehydration therapy in this study, they would receive a dose of Andansetron that would be weight appropriate. Um, and that really is a key element of getting success because now by the time the physician sees the child, the child is tolerating liquids. And so you've really set the child up for success, which hopefully then will allow this protocol to succeed regardless of where you are. We've made it through all the, the minor issues with this paper, but there was one big issue that, that kept coming up for me as I was reading this uh, paper. And you've already addressed it to some extent, but it was leaving me so confused as I was reading this paper. I think it's an, an important issue to address here. And that's that the kids that you included in this study weren't really sick. In fact, 68% had no evidence of dehydration at all using a validated scale. Honestly, those kids aren't much of a dilemma to me. I'm not starting an IV. I'm not even really keeping them in the department, no matter what. They're fine. They're going home. It's the moderately dehydrated kids that I care most about, the kids that I need to see drinking in order to convince me that they're okay to go home. But those kids aren't really well represented in the study. Now, I know that you've already addressed this to some extent, but I think it's important to repeat. Is there any reason to believe that results would be different in a sicker population? Or in practically speaking, should I be offering dilute apple juice to children who already do have clinical signs of dehydration? Well, you know, it's a question I can't answer. But by intent and, you know, real, by, by clear intent, I wanted to include low-risk kids in this study. You're asking about a group of kids, and you're right. Um, we did not include kids with significant dehydration. However, the reality is, is that many of these kids do undergo oral rehydration therapy attempts in the emergency department. Um, and your practice might be, you know, really, it sounds like you're already practicing what I would preach. So, so I'm preaching to the choir on this conversation, but to the broader audience, that might not be the case. Many individuals do believe that children who come in with significant vomiting do need to do or perform oral rehydration and succeed before leaving the ED. And we even saw, even in this, you know, as you mentioned, sick kids, um, a tertiary care center in Toronto, we had a 4% IV insertion rate overall and 7% in the electrolyte maintenance solution group. So there is still a group of children who are undergoing oral rehydration therapy. Some of them are still failing oral rehydration therapy. You know, about one in, I guess, 12 kids are receiving an IV if they're given an electrolyte main solution. So it is, I wouldn't say it's a no-brainer. It's something that people do need to consider in their practice. When you get into the question, though, of what about the sicker kids that you're focused on, Justin, um, 
I don't have that answer. And that hasn't been studied. And really, we excluded those kids because I have concerns. There are concerns from a physiologic basis that those kids do need a different therapy. Um, And so I really would discourage extrapolating the results of this study from this population. And really, if people want to look at it, you know, it's clinical dehydration score less than or equal to five, that those kids were the ones that we studied. And while the score was zero in almost 70% of our population, you know, we did include kids who had scores of one, two, three, and four, although they were small numbers, but we did include those kids as well. And really, as you get more and more dehydrated, as you assess the child as being more, more concerned, you should be more reluctant to use a hypotonic solution as a therapeutic approach. All right, excellent. And I, I want the expert opinion here. You're, you're, you're not going to be able to answer it from your study, but I want to know what you would do as our expert here. So if I have the child who comes in moderately dehydrated, maybe a score of six or seven on, on your scale here, so they don't fit into the study, but I'm able to get them rehydrated. I give them the electrolyte solution and maybe two hours later they're drinking and now they look better. What would you do at that point? Would you put them back into their preferred fluids uh, diet or would you continue, continue with the electrolyte solution? You actually, you know, even this is not a new, um, this is not novel from our study. The guidelines, you know, we can get into how strong the evidence is, but the guidelines going back for many years now have recommended that once the child is rehydrated, that you get them back onto a their normal diet as soon as possible. There's good evidence from some really older studies from the early 1990s in hospitalized kids showing that the resumption of enteral feedings results in earlier cessation uh, cessation of diarrhea Um, and that the kids do better, they get rehydrated faster, their weight gain is better if you get them back on a normal diet sooner. And so really what what we would do, you're you're recommending is is kind of the standard approach to care of once that child would be rehydrated, we should get them back onto their regular diet as soon as possible. And just to uh, throw a little blurb out there. We no longer really recommend the BRAT diet as the regular diet. That's a really limited diet. So BRAT being bananas, rice, applesauce, toast that emerged several decades ago. We really want them to get back onto their regular diet that they're tolerating, interested in eating, drinking as soon as possible. And that in this case would include using hypotonic solutions, um, which is the shift. So the shift here is that the standard would have been that you should use an electrolyte maintenance solution in addition to your regular diet to replace all your losses. So, cause that child may have diarrhea at home for three, four, five more days, vomiting for another day or two. But what we've shown is that you don't need to use an electrolyte maintenance solution at home, that in these kids who are rehydrated, you can actually let them drink whatever their preferred fluids are, which may include apple juice, may include sports electrolyte uh, solutions, uh, milk, et cetera, even to replace their losses. Okay, so we need a really simple nuts and bolts conclusion to all this. So when you go into work tomorrow, you see a three-year-old with vomiting and diarrhea. They have no red flags on history or on physical. There's a normal abdominal exam. It doesn't fit with appendicitis. There's no signs of DKA. And on your exam, you think the child is mildly rehydrated. Run me through your management plan and exactly what you tell the patients about hydration. So it sounds like, you know, I'm pretty convinced that this three-year-old has typical gastroenteritis. They're not significantly dehydrated, so they would not fit into the some dehydrated category. You know, really my management at that point is going to be making sure they understand and know how to do oral rehydration therapy properly, that they have a sense of what the red flags are, what they need to think about. I'd be, I'm always giving them a handout. So here at Alberta Children's Hospital, we have a handout and I highly recommend clinicians have access to handouts because parents do not remember 
what we tell them because they're often overwhelmed. It's late at night, their child's crying. So it's really important to have some take-home material as well as resources on the web to access. Um, And once they have that knowledge, I often give them syringes to bring home as well so that they can provide small amounts frequently as we taught them to do in the ED. So really recreating the milieu that worked in the emergency for them to do at home. And then actually I tell them to continue on and let the child drink their normal fluids at home to follow up if any of the red flags are met, achieved, if they have any concerns. It's really important, I believe, in these for these illnesses to empower parents to not feel like, even though you did nothing for them, for their child in the ED today, in the sense that you did not put an intravenous in, you may not have given them an antiemetic. It's important to make them feel empowered that the system is there to support their child should they have ongoing symptoms, because many of these kids do. But it's also equally important to make them prepared for the fact that their symptoms may go on for several more days. And if they don't have the red flags that you've discussed that are listed in the handouts that you give to them, that they should be able to provide care for their child at home using uh, a really uh, patient-centered approach of allowing their child to drink the fluids they want to drink and to eat the foods that they want to eat. Great. Uh, This is a great paper. I'm sure that children across Canada would thank you if they could. What do you have in store for us in the future? You know, really some of my interests now are focusing on how the kids do after they leave our walls. And uh, I'm currently conducting several RCTs looking at the use of probiotics in kids with gastroenteritis, primarily diarrheal disease, to see if we can make uh, help the diarrhea stop sooner. Um, and then also interested somewhat in uh, alternative approaches to diagnostic testing. Is the stool specimen collection at home really something that we should be doing? Are th- or other, Are there other alternate more convenient, um, as effective, or once again, non-inferior approaches that one should be able to consider um, to expedite point-of-care testing. And so that's some of the things I really think uh, are coming down the road. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll be sure to buy you a half-strength apple juice or or I guess your preferred fluid at whatever conference I happen to find you at in the future. (laughs) Sounds great. Thanks a lot, (laughs) Justin. Take care. My pleasure. Cheers. Bye-bye. Dr. Morgenstern and Dr. Friedman did such a good job summarizing It would be kind of superfluous for me to start summarizing here. And as opposed to other more controversial topics we've covered on Journal Jam, I really think that dilute apple juice for mild pediatric gastro is kind of a no-brainer game changer. So rather than discuss with Teresa what we should take home from this paper, instead, this time on Journal Jam, I invited Dr. Anthony Crocco, the Division Head and Medical Director of Pediatric EM at Health Sciences Centre in Hamilton, to give us one of his infamous funny rants on the topic and what he thought about the paper. But before we let Dr. Crocco loose on his rant, I wanted to let you know that Rory Spiegel, aka EM Nerd, the brilliant EBM vine from Baltimore, has joined the Journal Jam podcast team. I'm so psyched for this. So for future Journal Jam podcasts, we're changing up the format a bit. I'll be moderating conversations between Rory and Justin Morgenstern on deep dives, not just into single papers, but on all the best papers related to a key clinical topic. Now, the first one's going to be on whether or not we should use D-dimer in our diagnostic workup for aortic dissection. It's going to be a great one. And just to plant the seed for you, we've got a new EM cases project on the horizon. It's called Just the Nuggets where you can sign up on the EM Cases website on the newsletter page to receive directly into your inbox the key points from the main EM Cases episodes. Now, rather than just email you a five-page written summary, 
about one week after a main episode has been released on iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher. We'll send you one or two nuggets of knowledge about that episode every two days or so for about four or five days. That way, each nugget email takes only a couple of minutes to read while you're waiting in line for a cup of coffee or something like that. And over about 10 days, you'll have gotten all the key points from the podcast to help solidify your knowledge. So if you want to receive just the nuggets, a few emails per month covering the take-home points on the latest EM Cases episodes, go to the newsletter page on the EM Cases website where you can opt in to receive the nuggets. After listening to the podcast and then a week later reviewing the key points over a few days, your chances of remembering just about everything important from that podcast has just skyrocketed. Now back to dilute apple juice for pediatric gastro. Take it away, Dr. Crocco. Hi, this is Anthony Crocco, emergency pediatrician, administrator, educator, ranter, and creator of Sketchy EBM. I am a conflict of interest-free zone. Why is it that I hate Stephen Friedman and his team's research so much? Well, let me tell you. Firstly, Friedman generally does good quality research. Let me be honest. I take sick pleasure in methodically tearing apart poor quality research, so you can imagine how annoyed I get when I read research that is well-planned, well-executed, and where the author's conclusions don't overreach their data. Another thing that bugs me about Friedman's research is that it challenges assumptions I've held dear for decades. Doing x-rays a good idea to diagnose constipation in children? Wrong, Friedman 2014. Using Ondansetron a good idea for all kids with vomiting? Wrong, Friedman 2014. Giving all kids with gastroenteritis oral electrolyte solutions? The one thing that I remember from my four years of pediatric residency? Wrong, Friedman 2016. I'm also annoyed that the questions asked by Friedman and his team are simple and relevant. After reading his papers, I always have an I wish I thought of that moment. If ever I invent a time machine, I'm going back and primary authoring all of his research. Lastly, having met Stephen Friedman and his team, I wish I could say that they were arrogant or in some way unpleasant. Sadly, despite being academically accomplished, they remain humble and approachable. So annoying, so Canadian. So what about Friedman's latest research on oral rehydration of kids with mild gastroenteritis and minimal dehydration? Sadly, this was a really well-done paper. Perfect? No. Find me methodologically perfect research and I'll buy you a donut. Sure, there are some issues around composite outcomes and convenient sampling and some blinding issues once the kids were discharged. These are all limitations that Friedman has discussed and I'm not going to rehash them here. I will tell you that this article is a game-changer. 40 years ago, we learned that oral electrolyte solutions saved the lives of severely dehydrated kids suffering from cholera in low-income countries. At the time, we thought that the same oral electrolyte solutions would help our minimally dehydrated, otherwise healthy kids with viral gastro. Turns out we were wrong. Friedman's study shows that half-strength apple juice and preferred fluids is not only as good as electrolyte solutions, but in fact it's better. Number needed to treat to prevent an IV, 15 Not bad for something that's easier to find, tastier to drink, and cheaper to buy. So if you have stock in oral electrolyte solutions, it's time to sell. In the meantime, if you're helping a kid with mild gastro and minimal dehydration, give them what they'll drink. And if that's half-strength apple juice, that's fine. Thanks, Friedman. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's Journal Jam. Remember that together, we're smarter. (laughs) 